Welcome back to another episode of the B2B Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. In today's episode, I speak with Yannison Goldson. Yannison is an advocate in building a culture of ethics. He has helped countless companies improve employee loyalty and productivity through ethical practices, clear communication, trust, and enthusiasm. Yannison is the director of Ethical Imperatives, LLC. He is an ethics and leadership speaker, strategic storyteller, and TEDx presenter. He's also a community rabbi, recovered hitchhiker, and has published five best-selling books, including Fix Your Broken Windows, Grappling with the Gray, Proverbial Beauty, to just name a few. Today, Yannison shares with us why startups need to prioritize business ethics, the significance of creating a positive employee experience, and the role that trust, teamwork, and accountability play in paving the way for scalability. If you want to build a happier, healthier, more successful work environment as you're scaling your business, tune into this episode. Now, on to the interview. Hey, good morning, Yannison. Welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be with you, Brett. Nah, it's definitely my pleasure. And I appreciate the flexibility in the schedule. I know I put you through the ringer a little bit here the last couple of weeks, so I appreciate your patience. I'm super excited to have this conversation today. Well, we live in unusual times, so we all need to be flexible. <laughs> exactly, especially when most of us reside and now work out of our home office. So anyway, appreciate it. So to jumpstart the conversation today, why don't you give the audience just a little bit about your background and, and what you're working on today, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. Okay. Well, I went to University of California, studied English, and uh, used my degree to go hitchhiking cross-country for half a year and cross the Atlantic, went backpacking across Europe for half a year and ended up in Israel. And that's where I connected with my uh, Jewish roots, which I really grew up knowing nothing about. And I was astonished to discover this vibrant culture of deep thoughts and profound wisdom and 3,000 years of practical insights that are extremely relevant in our lives, changed the whole trajectory of my life. I lived in Israel for nine years, Orthodox rabbi, met my wife, had our first two children, and then started off on my career as a high school teacher, which I did for 23 years, a year in Budapest, Hungary, two years in Atlanta, Georgia, and 20 years in St. Louis, where I live now. And when I retired in 2016, I wanted to take all of the ideas, the universal principles that I've been studying and teaching for so long, and present them for a different type of audience, for a professional audience, to demonstrate to people how good ethics is good business, how we don't have to choose between being good and being successful, and the value of intellectual integrity and intellectual diversity. And so I started my business as a keynote speaker, speaking primarily to professional associations, professionals, corporations, and such, awaken in people the idea that relationships are the foundation of all our success. So true. And if we develop an ethical mindset and understand what that means, that is how we create successful relationships. And that's how we create success according to every metric. So the challenge right now, of course, is that the whole conference industry is shut down. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I've been trying to adapt and pivot like everybody else, take my presentations online and then try to shift a little bit more into different types of training and executive coaching, you know, like many of us still trying to figure it out at this point. 
Exactly. We're still trying to figure out what we want to be when we grow up. But well, there's that too. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you understated, you know, the, the TED Talks and, you know, one of the reasons really wanted to have you on because now the audience is we can start tying together why uh, high school teacher, why is this going to be relevant? But, you know, it is about ethics and doing the right thing and building the right types of businesses. And I think we give it a lot of lip service at times, but we don't necessarily think as much as maybe we should about what we're doing. And, you know, maybe to, to start us off, one I, I told you offline, I really enjoyed your book, you know, Grappling with the Gray. So maybe a little bit of a, some insight on, on why you wrote that. And then I'd, you know, I'd like to get into really around, you know, ethics and let's talk about that in a business sense. And if I'm a founder and I'm building a business, that type of thing. But so, so maybe why I write the book, timing, et cetera, like I said, I really enjoyed it. Highly encourage people to pick it up, but you know, I'd love to hear from you why. Yeah, the book's an interesting story. It just came out a month ago. And one of the questions I get asked, which is understandable and appropriate, is how do you define ethics? Which is not something that is as intuitive as we might think it is. And the, the critical distinction that I make is between what's legal and the line that I have used repeatedly in one form or another is that ethics governs the vast gray area between what's legal and what's illegal. Well, I was having this conversation with one of my mentors, a lovely fellow by the name of Steve Eppner, and he asked me the same question. And in articulating, it just came out a little bit different than it usually did. I usually say it's, it's grappling with those gray areas. I said, ethics is about grappling with the gray. And Steve said, that's a book title. Very so I had the title before I had the book. And as it turned out, what I had already been doing in my trainings was presenting ethical dilemmas ideas that are gray, that are not clear cut, and that require a certain amount of discussion and conversation because ultimately if we want to do the right thing, and this is true, this extends through everything. I mean, you look at all the problems we're having with politics and with social issues and with the structure of our society and the polarization, uh, the gridlock, the entrenched ideologies, the group think, it all comes down to this. There's an unwillingness to look at issues from two sides or more than one side. And the only way we can get close to truth is if we're prepared to look at all the angles. The only way we can get to real solutions and principled compromise is if we're willing to listen to where other people are coming from, understand them first, and then respond, rather than try to shut them down because we've already made up our minds what we think is correct. And so what I do in the book is I present each ethical dilemma, and they're very short chapters. Most chapters are just two or three pages. And the situations, the, the ethical circumstances are usually just a couple of paragraphs. And then I ask a few guided questions. What's one reason to support this side of the argument? What are reasons to support the other side of the argument? Are there other options? And now, what would you do? And then from there, I go into a guided discussion about how to look at the different angles. And I've got five sections. I talk about relationships, I talk about business, I talk about society, I talk about education, and I talk about uh, headline news. Not too much because people get really... <laughs> Very polarized. And really like, sensitive. Yes. <laughs> so save that for another book. But the idea is that if we can learn to have civil and thoughtful conversations about non-hot button issues, then we can train ourselves so we can start to get into the more, the more sensitive issues. But certainly in business, don't we want 
to investigate all the options? Don't we want to see all the angles? Don't we want to make the decisions that are going to be best for everyone, including us? That comes from the ethical mindset that has to be cultivated through these types of thought questions. That's the idea behind the book, to help business people in particular, but really all of us in all, our, all the aspects of our lives, to think in a more ethical way that will help create a more cohesive and a more functional society. Yeah, one of my biggest takeaways, in which there were many from the book, was just that, right? I mean, I think we're so entrenched, or can be. I like to think I'm a little bit more open-minded. I'll hear it from both perspectives, but political for sure, right? I mean, if you're Republican, you're going to hear that side and reinforced over and over. Democrat, most times we're not open to hear the other side. And I think what you do really well in this book is you know, challenge people to think about it from both sides. It's not as black and white as you think it is. And if you can't, and I was looking for the exact quote you had, but if you can't articulate the other person's side, then how do you know if you're right? And I know I butchered that a little bit, but I found that really interesting and so true that we just, we just don't think about it that way. Yeah, yeah. And that was a line that came right out of my TED Talk, that if I can't explain why you believe what you believe, how can I be sure that you're wrong? And if I can't understand why you're disagreeing with me, how can I be sure that I'm right? Right. And, you know, I, I always, I frequently quote my, my college professor. He said, I don't understand why people complain about being disillusioned. He said, I would like to be relieved of my illusions. <laughs> Most people would disagree with that. Well, exactly. But... And that's exactly what I said to him in college. I said, you know, that's you. <laughs> but, you know, and especially the older we get and the longer we become invested. So now it becomes such an ego issue. If right. I'm going to admit that I've been looking at things wrong for five or 10 or 20 or 30 years. I mean, that's scary. Yeah. But at the same time, what would I rather do? Discover that I'm wrong so I can start being right or just continue being wrong? Many people, I think, would argue, I just want to keep being wrong and I'll stick to well, my... Well, you know, and this is right. the issue that if we look at it objectively, or if, if I'm talking about it in the abstract, then we all understand it's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> but when we're in the moment, we don't see that. We don't see it that way. We don't recognize that that's even an option because it's, it's just, it's too uncomfortable for us to think about. And then that's where that mental reframing and that mental discipline comes from, comes into play. Yeah. And I think, again, doing the right thing, it's, it's hard to argue. But it would, like I said, it was interesting, the case studies, when you actually dig in where it seemed like, oh, this makes sense. Here's the right thing you would do. And then you kind of subtly question, <laughs> right? Are you sure that's the 100%? Because are you looking at it? Are you doing it with the right intent? And it was, you know, I think a lot of it just came down to, not just right, it's way too simple to do that. But again, looking at it from the other point of view, and are you doing this selfishly or selflessly? And like I said, I found it really, really an interesting and where I had thought it mostly from, you know, a personal standpoint, and then started thinking about it from a business standpoint. And, you know, a lot of the buzzwords today is, well, culture, culture is so important, right? And so then I started thinking about your book, I mean, ethics and culture, hard to separate the two. I'm interested in your perspective on that, right? Does culture come from the ethics of the leadership team or what's your, how would you define that? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, certainly in business culture, it's going to come top down. Right. 
just by design. The responsibility of leadership to create culture is profound. You know, this goes back a ways now, but Enron is still sort of the poster child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of funny because it's like so many of us never even heard of Enron before the scandal broke. But one of the things that they talk about that happened there is that the, the leaders in Enron promoted an adversarial culture. They pitted their executives against each other, thinking that this is going to make people sharper and more driven and more right. motivated. And this is one of the challenges when it comes to ethical thinking, that in the short term, crime pays. Being unethical can pay off very fast, very big in the short term. Right. Because you go in for the kill, you, know, you, you take advantage of opportunities, you take advantage of people, uh, no prisoners, and you can score big. But over the course of time, it's a false victory. Yeah. It's going to eventually come back and, and the whole system's going to break down. And that's what happened with Enron. It's simply disintegrated. And when you look at the scandals that make up our headlines, I was talking to our friend Diane Helbig on her show, and she asked me about Wells Fargo. Oh, yeah, it's good. And it was kind of funny because I talk about Wells Fargo in my keynote, but I hadn't been paying as much attention to the headlines, and I hadn't realized that they had repeated the same kind of scandal that I talked about in my keynote just, just a few weeks before I talked to Diane. I hadn't even noticed. So here you have a company that, and what's fascinating about Wells Fargo is that's one of the 11 companies written up in Jim Collins' classic, Good to Great. Right, right, right. Which, you know, it's a, everybody should read that book because it's all about leadership and it's all about culture. And the great leaders are the ones who set up companies to succeed after they're gone, not just while they're there. And Wells Fargo's was one of these extraordinary companies that had extraordinary success over a long period of time. There's still no guarantees. Right. We can, you know, success can become its own enemy after a while if you lose the sense of culture that's underlying it. And what went wrong at, at Wells Fargo is they set up these unrealistic sales goals that made their people insecure, that, that made them feel they had to do unethical things to protect their jobs. The company was, you know, was fined a billion dollars. It had been one of the most respected banks in the world, lost right. its reputation. And then what happens? It doesn't learn. It just flips right back into the same cultural errors that led to the mistake in the first place. And so if you don't have the culture being developed by those in charge, there's no way the people on the ground and the people on the front lines are going to be able to combat right. that sort of gravitational effect from above that is causing the whatever the problems are that are that are undermining the security and the stability of the company. So if we flip that, which can you get too big at some point, it's really it's like turning into Titanic. Even if you want to make a cultural shift, it's going to take time. And I'm I'm guessing there's companies and examples that have done it well, and it's just you know hard work and effort. But if we flip it to folks that are just starting their business, starting to grow their businesses, you know I I still find that 
you know, culture, right? And maybe it's more about building an ethical company is a more a better way to think about this. It's still an afterthought, right? They're focused on the positioning and the, making sure I get the right number of customers. But, you know, if history's told us, and I think in the numbers in your book and in your talks and at the website shows the companies that do the right thing and build an ethically stable or focused company, you know, outperform companies that are, are not, right? So maybe go into a little bit of help pivot to now I'm, a, I'm just starting to grow, maybe why it's important and then to how to, you know, start to do that as I start to build. So there's nothing more exciting than getting in on the ground floor of something that has potential. You have a vision of what you can create and you have a direction and you have the sense that, that this can really go somewhere. I mean, that's absolutely enlivening. You, know, you get into something and it's like buying a penny stock. You know, it goes up a penny, you just doubled your money. Right. <laughs> you, can, you, can see the pro, you can see the progress. But what makes that work? It works when everybody feels, everybody involved feels that they have a role to play. You could go into a whole philosophical discussion with you about the source of happiness, which really comes from living a life of meaning and purpose and seeing the success of one's efforts. But to put that into, into a business context, if you find people to come on board, and let's say you know, you're starting with two employees, five employees, 10 employees, if those employees feel that they are commodities, that they're assets, there's not gonna be any energy there. There's not gonna be any real commitment it's just going to be people collecting a paycheck and doing a job. If they feel they're partners, if they feel they're making a difference, if they feel that they're, they're stakeholders and that they are, they, then they're invested in the success of the enterprise. And it's not just about money. It's about vision. It's about mission. I, I like to tell the story when I, when I started my first day hitchhiking. I had taken a train from Palm Springs, California to Albuquerque, New Mexico and went out on the highway the next morning. I'm standing on the side of the road and cars going by 60, 70 miles an hour and nobody's slowing down. Nobody's giving me the second look. I stood there for an hour. And I'm wondering, is this actually going to work? <laughs> so suddenly I had a brainwave. I reached in my backpack. I pulled out my notebook and a pen and wrote in big block letters one word, Denver. I held up the sign and within minutes a car pulled up. The driver invited me in. I settled into the passenger seat. And he turned to me and said, I've never picked up a hitchhiker in my life, but I'm going to Denver. And I saw your sign. And I thought I should give him a ride. Interesting. Destiny. <laughs> well, yeah, but, it's, but the lesson within that is that when you have a destination, people take you seriously. And when you share a destination with somebody else, then people want to go with you. And the job of leadership is to define a destination that people want to go, where people want to reach, and make, make the journey look like it's a journey worth taking and invite the people who go on the journey to be partners and participants, not just passengers or employees. Yeah, I like and that, that comes from the sense of ethics, valuing people for who they are, for what they contribute, letting them make the best contribution that they can, empowering them to have a sense of responsibility so that they feel that they are real contributors, that they're real partners. I mean, this is how you build a vibrant culture that can just take off. I mean, you, you look at some of the, the really successful enterprises around us. I mean, why does everybody love shopping at Trader Joe's? I mean, everybody. Right. 
you walk in there and there is this in this feeling of everybody wants to be here. Everybody's doing something important. Everybody's probably, and there's a grocery store. I mean, you're not talking about, uh, right. you know, we're, we're not, we're not solving all the problems of the world, but you know, the, from the, the details, the handwritten signs, there's a hominess, there's a friendliness, there's an atmosphere. It's a culture they've created. I haven't much experience with, with Zappos shoes, but you know, apparently they've, they've just created this extraordinary culture. And then the stories that come out, the old lady who, who calls up and she's got a problem, and the guy gets in his car and drives to her house because she can't, she can't figure out the online ordering form or something. It, to allow people to take that kind of initiative, that if you just look at it in terms of cost and efficiency, well, you know, we can't, we can't afford to let this guy go out and, you know, it's going to cost more to help this old lady than it is you know, that we're going to make on the deal. No, you got it wrong. You're contributing to a culture that is going to be a culture of success. Yeah. And the investment in that culture is going to pay off in so many ways that are tangible and intangible that you're going to end up with many, many times on your return. Yeah. And I think what's, what's so good about that, and you kind of touched on it, I think it is, it is more about the journey, right? If you're just focused on the outcome or what the end result's going to be, and you're selling people just on the end result, you're not going to have the same level of success. Because I think it is all about the journey. I think even in your book, you talked about, you know, the journey being the, the biggest, it's, it's maybe not doing the right thing, but it's you, as you grow along the journey. And if you're bringing people into this, they're going to have to feel invested as part of this. As you're growing, you can't just magically say, all right, awesome. We've got culture, right? Do the right thing with that customer, you know, and go drive the shoes. Obviously, it was built in as the company grew and emerged that people were empowered to do the right things and do what's right by the customer. And maybe not even just right by the customer, just stop it at do, do the right thing. Right. Versus. And if you, if you take care of your people, your people will take care of the customer. Simon Sinek talks about this. He, he talks to these CEOs and they say, well, I'm concerned with the customer. He says, what are you talking about? You haven't seen a customer in 30 years. (laughs) Right. He says, you're responsible for the people who are responsible for the people who are responsible for the customers. And, And I learned this in teaching because I taught in a small high school with very limited resources and way too much community politics. And we had a principal who was just an extraordinary educator and administrator, administrator. Uh, and he did anything he could for us. And he always had our backs. And he supported us when we needed him. And he left us alone to do our jobs. And we, being a tiny school with no academic admission standards at all, and our students' test scores consistently matched those of the most prestigious private schools in the state. And it happened because he understood if he takes care of his teachers, his teachers will take care of the students. If he's worried about the students, it means he's not taking care of the teachers and he's not going to be able to help the students and the teachers aren't going to be of the mindset in the space to actually do their jobs properly. So while it was a high school, it was an extraordinary business model as well because our business was education and looking after the people who are responsible for the clients or responsible for the products, that's the way you create a successful business. Yeah. That comes from that ethical attitude and ethical mindset. You're right. And I think even it's funny, you know, I've been in this space for almost 30 years, right? B2B sales service, all along customer. You know, after that time, I thought I had it pretty well figured out, right? It's about execution. 
it is customer service, but the, the deeper I get into it, the more people I talk to, the more case studies. And I think the companies that are truly successful, and I think there's companies that aren't as successful because they haven't built it in, is around that employees all aligned around a mission, right? It could be a super simple mission, but if they're engaged and enthused, back to your point, is the CEO taking care of their people? Because if the people aren't excited about what you're doing or coming to work or it's just a job, no way the customers are going to get excited and enthused. In short term, it may be fine, right? The customer has this problem. You're the best product to do it. But guess what? Over time, somebody's going to figure out and that passion that either comes from the employees, which then translates to the customers, are the ones that truly separate you know, use Jim Collins' book, good to great, right? I think it isn't just execution. And I'd almost where, can't believe I say this sometimes, but there's companies that have that enthusiasm at their employee level will outperform, you know, companies that execute better just because of the belief system that that's within that company, right? I don't think you can do one without the other, but if you can get two, that's probably the perfect marriage. Yeah. And then they're not, there's no competition between the two, right? They, they support one another. When you want to be part of something successful, you're motivated to do your best and just becomes a matter of flow. I mean, you know, when Jim Collins talks about the flywheel right. that, and then in his models, you know, he, he shows companies that spent, you know, 10 years, 20 years. And, and I love his, his illustration that, that the job of the leader is to get the right people on the bus and then put them in the right seats. And there's this long takeoff or runway. And then all of a sudden there is some breakthrough point. And that's when the fly, that's when inertia kicks in. And then it just becomes an exercise in self-promoting success. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of the difference where I say you, you can grow a business, but if you want to scale it, it requires that flywheel and that momentum that you can't create just through brute force. <laughs> you can apply it and you can grow it, but you to really get that scalability that you need that you have to have that momentum. Yeah. You know, you talk to people who appear to be overnight successes. And I, when I got into the speaking business, I heard this again and again, you know, I worked for, I worked like a dog for four years and then became an overnight success right. <laughs> or, or seven years or 12 years. You know, there's, there's, there's no guarantee when it's going to happen, but there is a high probability that it will happen if we enter into our businesses with the right attitude. Right. And part of ethics is, you know, I've got an acronym for ethics and the, and the S at the end is self-discipline. It's not all, you know, I, I hate the term soft skills because it, it implies that they're less than critical. Really, they're, they're foundational. Right. But, 100%. you know, the, the ideas of culture and relationships, those things that don't translate immediately or directly into revenue, you still need the self-discipline at the end. You need the, the hard work and, and sometimes the long hours and the training and the, and the refinement and perfection of efficiency and, and uh, productivity. You need all that stuff. Right. But that's just one piece of the total picture. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, one of the things that I've been speaking a lot about lately is the opportunity for B2B startups, right? The time's never been better. You know, a lot of that is tied back to digital transformation and customer expectations of change, right? They don't want a salesperson to come on site to be able to sell the product. And if you need to require a person to sell it, you're probably not going to be successful in the long run. But that was a slow up until the pandemic. It was just a slow change that was happening, right? The buyer preferences, the corporations still kind of control it. Now with the pandemic, everybody's working from home. 
I look at it in two fronts. One is definitely the digital transformation. So if I'm a startup and I can provide a much level, better level of service to the customer, take friction out of that process. But two on the people side, so even if I'm on the enterprise, what I'm seeing is there's two types of customers right now, or companies. One that, hey, everybody's working from home. We've modified our processes a little bit, but we still want to you know, monitor your activity, right? You see the memes going around with you know, the guy who's taped his mouse to a Roomba to show that his Skype session's always still active. And then there's others that are truly adopting to what the new world is looking like. It's going to six my employee expectations are going to change, right? I don't want to go to the office. I don't want to spend an hour and a half commuting, if not more, every day. And so from a personal standpoint, where I think traditionally in the corporate world, we accepted this is just the way it is, right? You provide for your family, that's gone, or at least it's starting to change. And so again, when I, I read your book and, and hear you speak, I mean, I think that's a real opportunity, not just for startups. One, absolutely you need to build the people component and the ethics into this thing, but even more established companies, now is a good time to pivot because if you don't, you may not make it, right? I mean, that's a little dramatic, but I think it's true. Yeah, and the whole dynamic of managers, leaders, employees changes in a virtual, in a virtual office, in a virtual for world. And you look at teachers, my wife's a teacher, and she's really had to do some difficult adapting uh, this year. I'm sure. <laughs> and, you know, what can make it work or make it fail or make it much more difficult if administrators say, well, since you're not going to be on site, we are now going to put in place all of these devices so that we can ascertain that you're doing your job right right so one we're putting you in a whole different type of learning environment that you have to cope with two we're making use tools that you're not comfortable with and three we're adding whole layers of paperwork and regulations that communicate that we don't trust you exactly i mean this is not a recipe for success <laughs> no <laughs> so on the one hand i understand We've got people at home. People at home are, are tend to be less disciplined than they are in work, at least is that potential because there's no oversight. And so employers want to have some sort of means of regulating. But again, it comes down to culture. If we can say, listen, we're all in this together. We got to figure this out. We want to make things as easy for you as possible. And that means that we all have to take some responsibility for ourselves. And so we want to be able to trust you, and we're going to, and we need you to help us, to help make it easy for us to not have to worry. Right. And so now it becomes a question, we're all taking responsibility. And if we're all taking responsibility together, then there's this sense of obligation. This just came to mind, but you know, you, you've seen rowing crews and how in sync everybody has to be. Yes. You know, one guy decides, you know, I'm just not into it today. <laughs> well, that's too bad. <laughs> we can't do it without you. Everybody needs to be pulling. And in the same direction. Yeah. And at the same time, at the same speed. And, you know, not on my game today. That's not everybody else's problem. If I feel that sense of responsibility, if I'm not just letting myself down, I'm letting my team down. And and I know that I can't do that because they won't do that to me. 
you know, go back to Simon Sinek, he talks about this a lot with the, when, he, when he interviews the Navy SEALs and he asks them, who are the guys who make it? And he was told it's not the big guys who are strong and fast and endurance and, and macho and strong with everybody else with one hand, because those guys, it's all about them. Right. And when you're in those situations where you've been sleeping on a beach for two days and you've got hypothermia and you're, you're exhausted and unfed, and the only thing that gets you through is the people around you. Yeah, and the only team. way that works is if you're as invested in them as you want them to be invested to you. And, and the people who, people who succeed, they say, are the people who are looking out for others when they're at their bottom. When it just can't get any worse, that's when I reach out to see what can I do for the guy next to me. Yeah, it's such a good reinforcement of what we were, you're talking about with the teams, right? And, and building the right culture within that team. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of what we're seeing for the sports fans out there, right? College, probably all teams, but college football specifically, those kids that wanted to play right but you know having a hundred plus kids on the team and the risk of the pandemic and how are you doing your job every day not just on the football field but accountable right and i think what we're seeing is the teams that have avoided for the most part the big and it's not fair there's i'm sure there's things that happened and protocols that were broken but a lot of it comes down to the accountability to your teammates which i think goes back to the culture that's been set by the leadership or the coaching staff that hey we're in this together the only way we're going to get through it is if we are self-disciplined and we're watching out for each other and not selfish and a lack of a better word and you know, we, we may have a chance to get through it, but if we all go do our own things, go out to the parties, whatever, you have almost no chance of succeeding. So, I mean, I think we're seeing real life examples of it playing out today, right? Are you accountable to each other in ways that are probably more traceable or, you know, that magnified because of the environment we're in today? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, sports is a great model. I've gotten kind of cynical about professional sports because of the money and commercialization. <laughs> but you know I, one of the best movies ever made is miracle about the u.s olympic hockey team in, in 1980 which you know i watched in college and was it was such a <laughs> such an extraordinary thing to live through but the movie does such a good job i think i probably watched it 30 30 times or more that you know her brooks the coach takes these college kids and puts them up against the soviet olympic team which has been undefeated for 60 games and is considered unbeatable and and just some of the lines from the movie, he says, uh, you guys think you have enough talent to win on talent alone? He says, you guys think you're going to win on talent alone? You don't have enough talent to win on talent alone. Right. And, and his point is that when you create a culture of teamwork where everyone is looking, what is my contribution? How can I support the other guys? How can we do this together? He took a bunch of guys who did not match up man for man with anyone on the opposing team and won. Right. Because he created a culture. And the team is better, right? Team is more than the, the individuals. Some and, of the yeah. parts, exactly, exactly. There was a, again, probably I'm the only one who may care about this, so I'm not going to do a deep story, but Iowa State football played Texas, which they hadn't beat, you know, one in Texas in 10 years. You know, Texas has, you know, 35 four and five star recruits. I think Iowa State had four. Iowa State pulled the upset over the weekend, and one of their their star running backs said, hey, five-star culture beats five-star players. 
And he said, hey, our culture is, hey, we got chips on our shoulders. We work together. We're a team. We've built the right culture versus a collection of five-star individuals that may or may not have the same. So that was really an interesting insight from you know a 20-year-old kid that's going through the process. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's another line from the, from the movie. And, and Herb Brooks says, all-star teams fail because they focus on the individual. Right. Great example yeah. of it. So yeah. I do want to touch, I know we're starting to run low on time, but I do want to go back, or we haven't really talked about it, but you know, compliance versus ethics. Oh, and I yeah. think that's, yeah, that's important a big one. <laughs> for, for founders to think about, hey, you just can't put compliance around to drive the behavior. So I'd love you to unpack that for just a little bit. Yeah, I've got a few, a few lines I use about line, compliance. And the first is that compliance is often the enemy of ethics because the whole idea of compliance, and this is, this is another line I came up with uh, talking to Diane, that where compliance ends, ethics begins. You need compliance. You need a baseline of acceptable rules, regulations, conduct, protocols. The problem is, if you think some compliance is going to solve your problems for you, you've just made your problems worse. Very interesting. Because you can't legislate ethics for the reasons that we've already talked about. Ethics governs the gray areas between what's legal and what's illegal. When I say, well, I'm in compliance... Well, now I can stop thinking about whether it's right or wrong or good or bad or should or shouldn't. I have just abdicated my ethical responsibility to make those types of value judgments. And, you know, I, I come at everything from a point of view of, of Jewish tradition and history. The, the second temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed uh, 2,000 years ago, the sages look at what was wrong with the culture of Israel that undermined its political stability, is that people were following the letter of the law. Well, what's so bad about that? They were using the letter of the law to subvert the spirit of the law. They were in compliance. Right. And that was the most profound form of moral, legal, and spiritual corruption. Because the whole idea of the law is to give us a framework that we can then elevate so we can elevate ourselves. So to be in compliance is, that's important. That's the first step. But the question is, what happens next? How do we take the letter of the law and translate it into the spirit of doing what's right? And if you do that, if you create an ethical culture, then compliance takes care of itself because people are no longer looking for the loopholes. They're no looking for what can I get away with? Right. I mean, what happens when you're driving down the highway and all of a sudden everybody's slowing down? Why? Because there's a cop on the side of the road. And then what do we all do? <laughs> we look in our rearview mirror until the cop's out of sight <laughs> and then we speed up again. Okay, right? That's human nature. And again, speed limits are to some degree a rule of thumb. And the cop is sitting there. He doesn't want to give tickets. Right. He wants to make people start thinking about, oh, better pay attention. Yeah, he knows they're going to speed up again. And that's okay. They're going to be a little more aware because they haven't, they've broken that, that autopilot rhythm that they're in. And the whole idea of, of an ethical mindset is that we're not on autopilot, is that we are constantly evaluating for ourselves and for our culture. What should I be doing? You know, we, we haven't really defined ethics yet. No, right. right? There are a variety of ways to do it. And I've been reformulating this again and again and recently came onto a new formulation, which is that ethics is the discipline of recognizing and taking responsibility 
for the impact my actions have on those around me. Simple but powerful. Well, we have to have an awareness and then we have to act according to that awareness. And if we do that, you know, the metrics are, are so compelling that when you are part of an ethical culture, you feel more connected to people. You feel more creative, more cooperative, you have a greater sense of responsibility. You come to believe that people around you are playing fair and that makes you believe that you have to play fair yourself. Your levels of dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin are all boosted. You feel better. You feel more part of your organization. You feel more purposeful. You don't suffer from burnout. You're more efficient. And then you take that home to your family and you don't yell at your kids or your wife because you had a bad day at work because you've been holding it in because it's just so infuriating to right. deal with all these people who you, you don't trust and are trying to stab you on the back. I mean, it is the ultimate win-win on every level. And you wake up in the morning, you want to go to work because it's a wonderful environment. Right. Maybe a follow-up question for you and then I don't want to put you on the spot, but because I'm thinking about as you build up your startup teams and you may have two, five, 10 people, and I've always understood that it's critical that you get the right teammates on board initially because if you've got friction, which some friction is good, but I didn't really think about it from what you had just said with, you know, the ethics and doing the culture aspect. But to, the deeper I get into this more, I think it's critical that you get the, the right folks early in the process, right? If you bring somebody on that asks, well, what are the your restrictions or the guidelines, right? What am I allowed to do or not to do that may not be the right fit for overall because they're already conditioned to think about, hey, well, if I satisfy this, then right, I've, I've satisfied what was the right thing to do. And, you know, I've got to believe that success or failure is hinged on, you know, some of these smaller startup teams as they put them together that they had everybody's back and they were fighting towards, you know, again, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but like I said, the deeper I get, the more convinced I am that the human aspect and the people aspect trump the, you know, the business idea maybe in short-term and long-term. Just curious your perspective. I didn't articulate that very well. So no, I, I see where point. you're going. And it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't, uh, Jim Collins doesn't come up this often in all my interviews, but I have an article coming out in Fast Company in a couple of weeks about how to present yourself as an employee. And one of the things that, that he talks about in there, he says, you can teach skills. Yep. You can't teach character. And he recommends that, that leaders and employers put more value on character. As long as the person's teachable, as long as they have competence, right, you can teach them the skills they need to learn. If they don't have the right mindset, you're going to have a rough time yeah. getting them to blend into the kind of culture that you want to have to have a really successful team. And so there must be, I mean, I think 4 million copies of Good to Greater in print. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, somebody must be listening. <laughs> Again, one of my favorite books was was that as well. It just taught me to think about things differently. But, you know, and maybe there's a whole nother podcast episode on on hiring and looking to identify right character and how do you truly identify that as part of the interview process, where I think, again, my 25 years in the traditional corporate world was, you know, here's the skills we need, you know, can you do those 85% of the things and then, okay, we'll hire you and how much were you making before, but rarely was it, are you the right fit, right, personally for maybe at a big company that the team that we're hiring for, maybe it starts at the team and then the division, the group and, and company, but 
I guess I'm starting to see, I'm seeing more folks advocating for this, this approach than maybe I ever have, but are, are you starting to see folks taking maybe a different approach to their hiring? It's, it's a bit of a hard sell. Hard sell may not quite be the right term. We get so stuck in quantifying, in measurability, in the, you know, it's a lot easier to gauge. True. But if a person shows up with, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine when I was you know, sort of grappling with career options. And he said to me, you need to find a small company to run. <laughs> well, I hadn't really thought of that. <laughs> but you know, what, what he was saying is that he's had experience with and heard stories of people who you know, they, they somehow fall into a leadership position that they seem completely unprepared for and they don't have the background and they don't have the skills and they don't know the industry and yet they become tremendously successful. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I heard once, I don't know where this comes from, but I think there's a lot of truth in it that the best CEO does nothing. Hard to do, but I, I see where you're going with it. Yeah. And you know, if you want to read a good leadership book, you know, he's, he's a bit controversial these days, but Rudy Giuliani, a memoir of his time as, as New York City. Everybody pretty much respects the job he did for New York. 9-11. But he, well, through 9-11, but so many other things. But, you know, New York is a bizarre city. I mean, you've got, it's five different cities that are all fused into one municipality, right. which is insane <laughs> to try to you know, manage that type of a setup. But he had morning meetings with all of the borough heads to make sure everybody was on the right, on the same page, had the same sense of mission. Everybody's coordinated. Hey, let them do their jobs. When they say the, the CEO does nothing, it doesn't mean he, what he does is he makes sure that everybody is in the right place, doing the right thing, and that they're all aligned, and he's keeping the process moving and staying out of the way. And you look at leaders who try to micromanage, it rarely works. Right. Certainly not in the long term. And it makes everybody frustrated and it makes right. the leader exhausted. Yeah. And I think it, interesting that you say, because a lot of the, the founders that I've interviewed for the podcast that have gone on to scale their business, one of the inflection points is always when I had to start getting out of the way, right? Because as a founder, they were doing everything, but now the team's starting to grow. And almost to a person, it says, I wish I would have got out of the way quicker or sooner. And my guess, they realized it, you know, better late than never, but there's probably a lot that never realize it. And, you know, it's, it's critical to, to their business, but, you know, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, we talked about trust earlier and then trust is the T in ethics. If you don't trust your people, then you got the wrong people or they're, you're well, the wrong leader, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, it's, you're, and you're never going to get anywhere. Right. If people don't feel trusted, they don't feel empowered. If they don't feel empowered, they're just going to be, you know, punching the, punching the time clock. Yeah. 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 I know. And we could probably talk for another 45 minutes on this because I think it's absolutely fascinating and absolutely critical. And I know I've taken us down a, a few rabbit holes <laughs> as part of our discussion, you know, before I get to my, my final couple of questions, is there anything we didn't cover today that you, you think we should have, especially with, you know, startup founders or folks thinking about starting a business that, you know, we may not have touched on? Oh, listen, I mean, this is, a, this is a subject we could we could go on to. But I think we've really covered the the essential principle, which is which is one of mindset and one of relationships. 
you know, as long as we're doing my acronym, the E in ethics is as empathy, you know, anticipating others' reactions, understanding your people, understanding what they want and what will inspire them and motivate them and empower them to want to be contributors. If there is that, that sense of relationship and investment and partnership, that's going to carry any organization, any enterprise right towards success and, and move it move it much faster along yeah and i think great advice too you know across the board not just for business but you know if you're coaching if you've got kids family relationships right it's really applies the better we yeah. understand each other the better we're going to be right yeah and, that, and that's the you know that's the universal here i mean we're we're talking about it in, in a in a business context but you really don't have to make those kinds of distinctions True. Because on some level, everything's business, family, community. And vice versa, right? Everything is, is personal. What you do is a business. And I can't remember who I had on, but we got into a little bit discussion, right? The pre-industrial revolution, right? You were, your life was kind of what you did in your family. So if you were a blacksmith, it was part of what you did. Or if you were a farmer, it was, there wasn't really a separation. You weren't going to the office for eight hours and then coming home. And potentially now where we're heading back to is the more natural state of we are who our work is and what we do. And it's, to your point, we don't separate it, right? It's, it's just who we are. So it's going to be some interesting times, I think. Right? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that's the curse of Confucius, you know, live in interesting times. <laughs> Here we are. Yeah, 100%. Well, I do want to be respectful of your time. And, you know, maybe I will, we'll schedule up a follow, follow up to go deeper in a couple of these areas because I do think we could go much deeper. But yeah, I'd enjoy that. What's so, you know, as we look as we round out the end of, you know, 2020, which has been an interesting year to say the least, you know, what's, what's next for you? What are you working on here in the short term? You know, what, what can we look forward to? Well, you know, as we said in the beginning, I'm trying to figure this out like everybody else. I would like to, I've already start, started mapping this out. I want to create a couple of an online course because I've, you know, I've come up with so many different models for teaching ethics. I talked about my acronym, this is the six, and this is an article I had in Fast Company recently. People can look it up there if they want to go to my website. The six characteristics that define an ethical leader. And that's I use the ethics acronym there. But at the same time, you know, we're human, as human beings, we learn through stories. And the power of story is, is incredibly compelling. And so I come from a tradition that is rich in stories. And you don't have to look at it as being religious or, or, or theological. These are stories of real people who grappled with extraordinary challenges, some of the biblical figures and historical figures. And we, though they give us lessons for leadership. And so I'm, I'm working on, of course, the four muses of, of ethical decision-making. So I have to work on my technical skills to get that course up and running. Yeah. And, you know, and again, in this virtual world, my, my business model was one of keynoting with some training. Now I'm, I'd like to move into some executive coaching because that works a little better in this, in this uh, virtual we're in, world yeah. we're in. And you know, so I've got to work on my skills too. Yeah, I think it, I said your timing is, is probably, you know, you can't control timing, but I mean, everything that you're talking about, I think we were heading this way and everything just got accelerated. And again, it's not like it should be natural for us to want to do the right thing. And I'm guessing at some point it may have been more natural instead of the compliance and it's legal. So I'm not going to worry. It's going to satisfy me. Again, I'll go back and I know I've 
gushed a little bit about the book. It was really, it made me think, right? And you talk about the power of stories. All these case studies are stories, just different, you know, anywhere from the customer service, the McDonald's to the son that, that was going to visit the prince and said, don't take a wager. It just, just things that seem straightforward weren't as straightforward as you, if you took a second, not, didn't have to go super long to think about it from the other perspective. It just, it, it was helpful to me, at least hopefully I continue to think this way is just take that extra second and think about it from the other perspective, because I think in the long term business, personal, everybody's going to benefit if you do that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, certainly if, you know, if your audience wants to, to look at me up on my website, I've got all kinds of resources there, articles, videos, interviews, and, you know, some freebies, eBooks Great and content. such, you know, encourage people to reach out and always looking to, to keep the conversation going because again, we're all in this together. Right. And yeah, we are, if we, if we support each other, there's really no limit to, to what we can accomplish. Hundred percent, and I will make sure we link to everything in the show notes so people don't have to scribble furiously to get it. But I can't let you go without asking you. Well, the one final question is: What is one thing that you would would highly recommend? And based on our conversation today, I'm super. <laughs> no pressure, though. <laughs> I don't think that it's it's really that deep, and I think we've already touched on it. You know, I, I talked about I, I said that the S in in, in ethics is is self discipline, but there's a second S, which is service. And to live a life of service is ultimately more rewarding than anything else one can do. And that doesn't mean that we can't make money. Right. I mean, we live in a service economy. But if, if I'm looking for what I can do for others, looking to do it in the best possible way using my unique skills, talents, opportunities, resources, that's how I'm going to achieve the most of my potential. And that's how I'm going to be the most successful that I can be. And that's how I'm going to make the most money I can make. And if I'm not making the most money, I'll be better off than making more money doing something that I'm not passionate right. about. So true. Look, you know, what we need to do is ask ourselves, how can I serve in a way that serves everyone? And I'm part of everyone. How can I fulfill my, what am I in this world to accomplish? What am I in this world to contribute and build? When you use the word success, it means a yeah. lot more than money. There are a lot of really unhappy rich people in the world. So true. And there are a lot of really happy people who are not rich. And the sages say, who is rich? The person who's happy with what he has. Or is it time, right? Are you time rich, right? I think that's starting yeah. to become more of a realization for folks. We talked about what happiness means. Happiness means that I feel that I'm making the most of my time here in this world. Right. And so look at life as opportunity to serve others and by serving others, serve yourself. That's so good. It's so true. Like I said, we could go deeper and yeah, I think again, I wasn't sure where the conversation is going when we started this. So I'm super thrilled and, you know, selfishly, I really enjoyed this because I do think, right. You know, one thing I talk a lot about is enjoy the process, right? If you don't have the mission or happiness with the process and you're just focused on the outcome, you're going to be disappointed. And I think this just kind of reinforces that, that it's about the journey and are you making the right decisions? And, you know, the super simple way you used to think about it was, you know, karma, right? Karma is going to come back and, but you do the right thing, it's going to pay you back. And, you know, in a more articulate way, that's what you're, you're telling us, right? It's, it's going to pay you back if you do the right thing. Well, I mean, karma is just the sort of metaphysical manifestation of alignment. You know, when everything's aligned, then everything works together. 
And if you, if you disrupt that alignment, then there are going to be consequences. Right. Short, like back to your original point, there could be some short term gains, but it's going to be fleeting. Yeah. So awesome. Well, Giannis, and I really appreciated the time today and enjoyed this conversation. And again, I think we talked about what the best people to find you. We'll, we'll link to your website. LinkedIn, is that also a place that people can? Yeah, I'm uh, through the website, JonasandGoldson.com and LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn, a little bit less so on the other platforms. Uh, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> again, All right, well, I'm, to reach out. And it's been a pleasure, Brad, really. No, I enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day. And we'll, we'll check back in with you here in the, uh, the early part of 2021. Look forward to it. Awesome. Thanks. All the best. 